Hello, welcome to Reading in the Attic, a podcast featuring old and new fiction with a retro feel. My name is Camille LaGuire, and I'm literally reading these stories to you from my attic. So pull up a dusty chair and settle in. We're starting with an old melodrama from World War I. For Belgium was written by J.J. Bell and illustrated by Dudley Tennant. It was published in the Strand magazine in 1915, when the rape of Belgium was strong in everyone's minds. I'm starting here for a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones is that I used an illustration from this story as the header for my blog. It's a great illustration, a desperate and rather fierce-looking Belgian woman holding off a Prussian soldier with a saber. I also chose it because the story has a silent movie sensibility. You could see this produced on a stage, or on the flickery silent movie screen, with its mustache-twirling villain and slightly histronic acting, and the dialogue and titles. And I'm a great fan of old movies, especially silent movies. At the same time, though, this story has a more serious aspect. For all that it feels like a melodramatic bit of propaganda, there was a tragic reality behind the details of the story. And I'll tell you more about that after the story. First, let's begin. For Belgium, by J.J. Bell. Toward midnight, the rain ceased. The air seemed to become suddenly colder. A thin fog gathered on the Belgian plain surrounding the village which, like so many others, had recently suffered a senseless bombardment. To the village, now so silent, came fitfully the dull booming of distant guns and the ceaseless murmur of a swollen river. In one of the houses still habitable, though damaged as to its front apartments, A dark-haired young woman stood by the kitchen dresser, in the light of a couple of candles, and read, not for the first time, a letter which, apparently, had been folded originally into the smallest possible compass. She was a handsomely built young woman, and her present pallor and patent anxiety scarcely detracted from the charms of her features. Her lips moved to the written words, as though she were learning them by heart, which, as a matter of fact, she had done hours ago. At last she refolded the letter and put it carefully in her bosom, and, shaking her head, murmured, It's long past the hour. He will not come now. He dare not. The good God grant that they have not captured him. She began to pace the floor, her head drooping, her fingers locked in front of her. The kitchen was spacious, but barely furnished. The Prussians, in occupation of the village during the past three weeks, had helped themselves, giving receipts, of course. A broad dresser with racks of dishes and a tall cupboard stood against one wall. A stove projected from the wall opposite, wherein was a door leading to the rest of the house. The door to the yard was placed between wide, squat windows, draped in dark-colored curtains, which, however, were undrawn. Under one window stood a table with a red cloth. Under the other, a sewing machine of the sort that may be worked by hand or foot. A coarse rug lay in front of the stove, another in the midst of a flagged floor. There were cracks in the walls and window panes. The young woman did not pace the floor long. With a start, she stopped short, all in the alert. But her glance reached the nearer window a fraction of a second too late to detect a man's face being withdrawn. As she stood listening intently, the door was cautiously opened, 
A young soldier, his ragged dark blue uniform soaked and muddy, stepped in. Jules, she exclaimed in a whisper, half joyous, half fearful. He glanced swiftly about him, closed the door as cautiously as he had opened it, laid down the bundle wrapped in sacking, and pocketed a revolver. With a rush, he took the girl in his arms. Louise, Louise, after these long weeks. For all too brief a space, they exchanged sweet incoherencies. The girl gently put him from her. Jules, you must not waste a moment. When you did not come by eleven. How long am I safe here? Oh, there's no safety for you. At any moment. Your letter made me to understand that the two Germans never come back before midnight. I'm late, I know, almost too late. The way was difficult in the darkness. They seem to have doubled their sentries. It is near midnight now, Jules. See? She pointed to the clock. Suppose the Germans were to come in before their usual time. He kissed her and laughed reassuringly. Five minutes will suffice, if you have done all that my letter asked. It is done, although I was puzzled. No doubt, he laughed again. Well, he said briskly, I'll get to work. Help me, Louise, first by bolting the door and drawing the curtains. He picked up the bundle and folded back the rug in the middle of the floor. She took a step towards the door and halted, hesitating. Jules, it's against regulations to bolt doors and draw curtains. They've been very cruel to people for less. Their cruelty is near an end, he said, grimly, dropping to his knees and untying the bundle. Cherie, do as I ask. One must take risks for Belgium. Without further delay, she obeyed the request. Thereafter, she drew near and stood watching him. From the bundle, he took several tools, and also an oblong box with a grooved wheel at one end. What is that, Jules? she inquired, in a low voice that seemed to have become habitual. An electric battery. He closely examined the dusty floor, and then, with one of the tools, he prized up a flagstone. His face lightened. All in order, he remarked, and drew from the recess a short coil of thin rubber-covered cable. What is it, Jules? The wire we laid, Jacques and I, just before the Germans came. Oh, Jacques, she sighed, my poor brother. He died for Belgium, said the young man softly. But his good work remains. He let the stone back into its place. A tiny groove had been cut in its edge for the passage of a cable, and proceeded to screw the ends of the wires to the battery. Where's old Marie? he asked casually. Upstairs asleep? Louise did not answer at once. When she spoke, it was unsteadily. Old Marie lies upstairs dead. This morning, before it was light, she went outside for water. She was shot, in mistake for a spy, they said. The crazy devils! Yet the boy who carried our letters came through them safe. Poor old Marie! Well, she also shall be avenged. He replaced the edge of the rug over the recently disturbed flag and rose. Now for that happy thought of mine, the sewing machine. Ah, Louise, how I puzzled my brains before I struck the idea. I also have been puzzling, she said with a faint smile. Why? Soon you will understand. Come, help me once more. Between them, they brought the machine to the rug, adjusting its position there to a nicety. And again, he went down on his knees. The foot gearing had been removed. The machine itself put in order for handwork. Where the footplate had been, Jules placed the battery and made it fast and rigid with cord. 
finely and carefully. He fitted a thin round belting over the wheel of the machine and under that of the battery. Sinking back on his heels, he contemplated his performance with unfeigned satisfaction. Louise, he said, tonight before I started, my captain embraced me, saying, do this, Jules, and Belgium will remember your name. But it shall be our names together, my girl. But what does it, Louise began and laid her fingers on the handle. Like a shot, he was up and snatched her hand away from the machine. Mon Dieu, he gasped. Not yet. Too soon would ruin everything. The next moment he kissed her reassuringly. Dearest, you shall know all in a moment. Now to make our work look very, very innocent. A cloth. That on the table will do. She brought it to him. Between them they hung it round the edges of the machine stand, and he fastened it tightly with a nail or two. He stood back, regarding the result admiringly. Innocent indeed, he exclaimed. Yes, but... Breaking off, she ran over to the dresser, opened a drawer, and came back with a small heap of sewing, which she laid beside the machine. A little more innocent, is it not, Jules? Bravo! Allow a woman! He got a chair and placed it in position for working the machine. Allons, it is finished. He picked up the sacking and tools and cast them into a press under the dresser. At that moment, fear returned upon the woman. Jules, you must go. The peril is too great. He slipped his arm about her waist. Yes, the time grows short, but before I go, I must explain. Listen, Cherie. He threw his free arm in the direction of the nearer window. Out yonder is a great bridge that was our misfortune three weeks ago. He made a gesture in the opposite direction. Away yonder is our new hope. Three thousand brave men, hiding, alert, waiting for the signal. Oh, Jules, but what can three thousand do? Much, if the Germans on this side of the river lose communication with their friends on the other side. They will be caught in a trap. Men, guns, stores, and all. But there's more, he went on, unable to wholly repress his excitement. Tonight, within the next hour, the Germans will bring over the bridge five great new guns to harass our English allies on the coast. Those guns must not reach this side, at least as German guns. Now you can guess. She clasped her hands. Jules, she whispered, the bridge is mined. It is so. The mines ought to have been sprung three weeks ago. Yet they will cost the Germans dear tonight. Come and see. He led her close to the machine and lightly touched the handle. A dozen quick turns, that is all. He paused, looking deep into her eyes. Louise, I must go now and tell our friends that all is prepared. If, if I do not return in time, if anything happens to prevent my reaching this house, will you deal a blow for Belgium? Again, he touched the handle. She clung to him. I will do it, for you and Belgium. But, oh, love, you will come back to me. Then we shall win. Your signal will be a single stroke on the church bell. Be ready. Act promptly. The good God sustain you. And go with you and bring you back to me. She sobbed in his embrace. The clock began to strike. Midnight, she cried in a panic. Fly, dearest. He tore himself from her. Farewell, Louise, farewell. He ran to the door, opened it quietly, peered into the night, and the door closed behind him. Louise stood motionless, her hand to her heart. Guard him, 
guard him, she sighed. The next moment she was hastily drawing back the curtains. That done, she seated herself in the chair by the machine and bowed her head in her hands. Not far away, a rifle cracked. Again, and yet again. She sprang up as if to make for the door and relapsed. Heavy footsteps approached the house. A voice unpleasantly familiar said, Another of those stupid spies got more than he wanted. Well, good night, good night, sleep well. Louise sat up, found a needle with a thread in it, and made a feint of sewing. Another voice replied, Good night, Blutner, and the sound of retreating footsteps followed. The door was flung open, and Blutner, one of the two Prussian officers who had made their quarters in the house, entered. He was a good-looking young fellow. Bright-eyed and fair, and, as would be seen presently, his uniform bore few traces of hard service. He slammed the door behind him and, without a glance at the figure by the machine, strode over to the stove. "'Curse the cold,' he muttered, removing his gloves and heavy coat, which he threw behind him on the table. There also he placed his helmet. He unfastened his sword-belt and hung it over the back of a chair, into which he dropped, placing his feet on another." He yawned, stretched his arms, and yawned again. "'Bring wine,' he suddenly commanded in French. Louise's head went up with a haughty jerk and dropped back down to sewing. After a pause, "'Bring wine, I say!' These words were out before he turned his eyes to enforce them. He seemed somewhat taken aback. "'I ask pardon, Fraulein. The servant, where is she?' Louise rose. The faintness had passed. She would do her duty." I will bring you wine, she said in a restrained voice. My servant is dead. Himmel, I had forgotten, he murmured and got up quickly. I will fetch the wine for myself. I know where it is kept. She resumed her seat and he crossed the floor to the tall cupboard, where he provided himself with a couple of bottles and a tumbler. Carrying these to the stove, he drew one of the corks with the screw from his knife. He filled the tumbler and seated himself, remarking pleasantly, you remain up late tonight, Fraulein. You have work to do, I see. He drank as one thirsty. Yes, she said without raising her eyes. I have work to do. Your room is quite ready for you. I thank you. But you do not so often honor this room, Fraulein. The rain comes into my own room, and fuel is scarce. Tomorrow I will seek a room in another house. She felt it was necessary to talk, to hold his attention to herself. Not so, I beg of you, he said politely. My comrade and I leave this place tomorrow. I will see that no others shall be quartered upon you in future. This is your home. It shall be respected. He gazed at her admiringly and raised the tumbler, as if he would drink to her health. However, she appeared to be intent on her seam, and with a shrug of his shoulder he tossed off the wine. Having refilled the tumbler, he continued. Before I go tomorrow, I will give you a receipt for all that we may have consumed in this house. Germany is honest, and will pay for everything. Now she faced him. Her voice became quiet but incisive. Truly, monsieur, Germany shall pay for much. The significance of the words, or their tone, escaped him. For everything, he repeated easily. When the war is over, Germany will be rich enough to... Still quietly, she interrupted him. My father, too feeble to fight, beaten to death by drunken soldiers. My brother, killed by a shell thrown on an undefended village. 
my mother and little brother, beggars in Holland. My young sister, the good God knows where. My fiancé, I ask you, monsieur, how shall Germany pay for these? He made a gesture of impatience. In for, Fraulein, there is bound to be suffering and sadness. There is nothing else. She raised her voice slightly. Is it true that you German soldiers are taught to leave us nothing but our eyes to weep with? Ah, oh, the words of one of our greatest men. Your Kaiser? Nine, but the man must have been greater than his soul. Nothing but eyes to weep with. That is all the Kaiser and his warlords are going to leave the German nation. Blutner started, but quickly controlled himself. Haughtily, he said, Victory will dry all eyes in Germany. You dream of victory. She had gone back to her sewing. Already victory is assured. I give you a German's word for that. Her voice was soft and cold as snow. A German's word. What may that be worth nowadays? Stung, he exclaimed, You go too far. Surely a Belgian has the right to ask that question. If you were a man, one of us two would now be silent forever. Nay, she proceeded calmly, I no longer fear anything. I am surfeited with the frightfulness of you Germans. You no longer impress me. When all is said and done, you can only kill and burn and murder and steal. I order you to be silent. Louise threaded a needle, or pretended to do so. Oh, you are brave enough. You have your courage, I grant you. But you also have an unfortunate faculty for spatting your glories with shame and dis... Not another word! On land, on sea, in the air, your gallant deeds are leavened with ignoble ones. If chivalry must pass forever from the earth, Germany will have expelled it. At that he sprang up, furious, dashing the bottle to the floor. You madwoman, must I silence you with my hands? There is more wine in the cupboard. He strode to her side. Are you not afraid? His hand fell and brutally gripped her shoulder. She winced. So, he laughed. Yes, she said with an amazing calmness. You can hurt, you can destroy the flesh. Bah! He flung away from her and went back to the stove. Against its edge, he cracked the neck of the second bottle. As he charged his tumbler, he muttered, There's time enough. Time enough. And then aloud, You are a brave woman, Fraulein, but it is a mistake to be brave as well as beautiful. He elevated the tumbler. Fraulein, I will drink to our better acquaintance. She was bending over her sewing. Behold, he cried, to our better acquaintance, pretty one. So, he laughed roughly, she is proud and cold, proud and cold as a statue. Well, we shall see, he drained his glass, we shall see. Presently he rose, smiling, and proceeded leisurely to draw the curtains and bolt the door. Her eyes followed his actions, but she did not stir. Having refreshed himself once more, he strolled over to the machine and halted, looking down upon her, still smiling. Well, he said softly, mockingly, she paid no attention. What do you think I was doing just now? Breaking your own regulations. What one makes, one may break. Listen, Fraulein, I am going to tell you something. My comrade will not be here till morning. 
He is on special duty. Shall I tell you where? He lit a cigarette and continued. He is on duty at the bridge, waiting for the passage of our splendid new guns. What are those splendid guns for? To put an end to your friends, the damned English, on the coast. Ah, I am very well aware that you poor ignorant people here have hopes. But put them away. They are vain, crazy. You have not a fighting man left within ten miles. He leaned forward and gave her arm a playful little shake. So you still make believe you are not afraid? I know better, pretty one. What is left for me to be afraid of, she said wearily. He leaned nearer. Only myself. Oh, she recoiled as though stabbed, wilted as though her nerves strung to the limit had been severed. And yet I am not so terrible a fellow when I get my own way. You understand, when I get my own way. Beast! Springing up, she backed from him. He followed without haste. There is time enough. We have a house to ourselves until morning. Help! Oh, help! Spare your pretty voice. Who in this place gives heed to a woman's cry in the night? Jules, if you still live, she cried desperately, her back to the dresser. My name is Carl. He strode forward to seize her. Slipping under his arm, she darted across the room. Like a flash, she whipped his sword from its scabbard and turned, panting to face him, just as he was upon her. With the sword's point at his throat, she forced him to retreat toward the door. Passing the window, she caught with her left hand the curtains and tore them down. The sword wavered, but not long enough for the man to escape. His eyes roved in search of something that might avail him. She drove him beyond the door, then, with a quick movement, she drew back the bolt and pulled the door wide. Help! Jules! He saw his chance. He sprang sideways toward the sewing machine. He snatched away the cloth that hung from the table, wrapped it around his hand and arm, and leapt upon her, and wrestled the sword from her tired hold. Breathing hard, inflamed with mingling passions, he flung the door shut and approached her, until his sweating face almost touched her white countenance. His voice was thick. What now, my pretty one? She fled to the dresser and leaned against it, on the verge of collapse. Her eyes saw nothing save the exposed secret. Laughing, he passed to the stove, threw aside the red cloth, and returned his sword to its scabbard, and took a gulp of wine. Presently, still laughing, he advanced toward her once more. About the center of the floor, he paused to bow mockingly and say, it is time to surrender, is it not, my... Boom! From the night came a sweet and solemn lingering note. Blutner's smile vanished. His body straightened with swift attention. What was that bell? He exclaimed involuntarily and made for the door. As he did so, Louise darted forward. She was too prompt. A moment later, he would have been peering out into the night. As it was, something about her movement warned him. He wheeled around and realized part, if not all. Got in Himmel! A mine! he shouted, and grasped her as her fingers flew to the handle. But she wriggled free, and with all her feverish might, she drove both her fists into his face. He staggered, blind for a moment, and in that moment the deed for Belgium was done. Louise reeled from the machine and as she came to rest against the door, a great flare crossed the curtainless window and illuminated the interior. 
For the next two seconds, Blutner stood like one in a trance. At the third, a tremendous concussion rocked the building. Plaster fell, crockery rattled, the door of the stove flew open, glass shivered and tinkled. Blutner dashed at the girl. What was that? Answer or I'll kill you! She broke into hysterical laughter and disconnected words. The bridge. Your splendid guns. Gone. Lost. You also. Vive la Belge! Vive l'Angleterre! Beside himself, he struck her on the mouth. She drew her hand across it and cried, Kill me, German beast! I care not! Savagely, he seized her. Yes, you shall die. Be shot, nay, hanged. But first, first you shall pay me. Grinning in his frenzy, he began to drag her, struggling across the floor, in the direction of the inner door. Ya, first you shall pay. Out of the night sprang a racket of machine gun and rifle fire. A bugle sang wildly. Gott, it is an attack. He hesitated, but only for an instant. First you shall pay me. Pay me, my pretty madwoman. Come, it is useless. Running footsteps, the door burst open. Hands up, devil! Jules, his head bound in a bloody rag, stood there, revolver leveled. Louise, breaking away, flew to the shelter of his left arm and hid her face in his muddy breast. In a stiff, mechanical fashion, Blutner's arms went up. He looked as if he were going to cry. The End You probably noticed I used a couple of sound effects in this story. I don't think I want to make a regular practice of this, but one of the reasons I used it is because I noticed when I was reading there are some things that don't translate as clearly from text to words. For instance, when the bell goes off, Blutner is talking and then he stops, and it's hard to make it clear that he was interrupted when you wait a second and then go, boom, which... I mean, the text is boom, and so I made it sound as much like a church bell as I could, but I realized adding an actual church bell right interrupting what Blutner says actually sounds better. And I also apologize to any Germans out there because the accent I was doing was kind of generic, but on the other hand, the character is sort of a generic bad guy. But it came out sounding kind of Russian and occasionally kind of Hispanic. I'm still working on some of those accents. And in the meantime, I told you that I would tell you a little bit of the story behind the story. That is, the real events that the story refers to. Um, I've written this ahead because I don't extemporize very well yet. So now to my notes. At the start of World War I, Germany wanted to invade France. But the French had fortified the heck out of their border with Germany. So the Germans decided to march through Belgium. Belgium was protected only by a treaty, and, well, the Germans figured that, since they weren't technically invading Belgium, they didn't have to worry about the treaty. So they sent a note, Kaiser to King, and said, Hey, we're going to march through your country on our way to France. You don't mind, do you? Uh, yeah, we do, said the Belgians. We're neutral. No, no, said the Germans. We're sure the French have violated your neutrality somehow. We've had reports. Maybe you didn't notice, but the French are messing with your border, so we're marching in to take care of it for you. Um, no, said the Belgians. 
So the Germans marched in, and even though the Belgians didn't have much of an army, they resisted. As a matter of fact, they had a couple of really great fortresses that held the Germans at bay for a while, and the Germans had to bring in these huge guns. They were so big, they couldn't actually be transported in one piece. And some of them were so big, they had to have huge concrete foundations poured for them. They were unwieldy as heck. And this set the German advance back far enough for the rest of Europe to get its act together. Otherwise, the war would have been over quickly. And during that time of occupation, there really were horrible atrocities committed. At the time, many people thought it was propaganda, but it turned out to be true. The German leadership at the time, from what many wrote in letters and in their journals, couldn't comprehend the idea of resistance. They thought opposition was somehow treachery. And they thought that the way to discourage resistance was to burn cities to the ground and randomly execute civilians. Of course, they also thought that torpedoing British merchant ships would make England want to forge an alliance with them. I should pause to point out that nearly all sides in World War I were somewhat delusional. Also, that the Belgians were only a decade or so earlier were routinely committing horrible atrocities in the Congo. Nobody's perfect, I guess. But under the new king, Belgium certainly did hold the moral high ground in Europe anyway. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, I'll read to you a story that I wrote in response to Hemingway's famous six-word story, For Sale, Baby Shoes Never Used. I decided that there could be a whole lot more to that story than it appears. This week's story was For Belgium by J.J. Bell. Recording, sound production, and additional material by Camille Laguire. The music was provided by the Royalty Free Music Company. The sound effects from Royalty Free Sound Effects. Until next time, see you in the funny papers.